Coming up on In Session. I would say the qualities of a good coach, the absolute first thing is to earn the trust of the person who's being coached. Because at some point you're asking that person to take some risks, to change something about themselves. People don't like to do that. People are rightly kind of wary of that. In today's episode, we discuss decision-making, collaboration, and the power of coaching with our guest, journalist and author, Michael Lewis. In his book, The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds, Lewis chronicled the lives of award-winning researchers, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman. Their work challenged the idea that people are rational decision-makers and their partnership illustrated the possibilities of professional collaboration. In his book, Coach, Lessons on the Game of Life, as well as on his podcast, Against the Rules with Michael Lewis, he explores the positive impact coaches can have on performance. Lewis has published numerous New York Times bestselling books, including three books that have been made into movies, The Blind Side, Moneyball, and The Big Short. His most recent book, The Fifth Risk, is about the often underappreciated and positive role the federal government and public servants have on our lives. Our host for today's episode is Michael Siegel, Senior Education Specialist at the Federal Judicial Center. Michael, take it away. Thanks, Lori. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Total pleasure. Pleasure is all ours. The Undoing Project is largely about the collaboration between two brilliant and in many ways opposite men, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman. Give us a sense of each of them as individuals and how they work together. What can we learn from them? Yeah, no, I thought of, when I conceived of the book in the first place, although it was a story of this intellectual project that they'd been engaged on, which is investigating basically how the human mind makes decisions under conditions of uncertainty and how they're kind of systematic mistakes that people make. Um, it was, that could sound like a dry intellectual project, mm-hmm. but it was a passionate love affair between these two guys. It was platonic, but each of them said that the that they had a deeper relationship with the other than they had with anyone else on the planet, including their spouses. They were opposites in many ways. They, they were, there was a great deal of contrast. Even though they were both Israeli Jews, they were roughly the same age, the people around them said, how could these two be together? Amos Tversky was... The, the kind of the clearest intellect that anyone who met him ever met. His mind was uncluttered. He had a mathematical or a logician's mind. And he was very funny. He was kind of ruthless with the world around him in some ways without letting them know. There was a, a, a sociologist who created an intelligence test after meeting Amos Tversky. And it is the longer it takes you to figure out that Amos is smarter than you after you've met him, the stupider you are. So Danny, on the other hand, is this tortured, complicated soul and has very good reasons in his biography for being tortured and complicated. I mean, his very, very early childhood is spent hiding from Nazis in France and watching his father die. If Amos's superpower is clarity of thought, Danny's superpower was doubt. He would doubt that the sun would rise tomorrow. And, and from that doubt, they'll have all kinds of insights that no one ever had before. And he'll torture a problem to death. These two, these two meet, and they engage on this in this intellectual journey that I think is one of the great scientific collaborations in history. Yeah, your book certainly made that point, and 
And even though they were so different, they, as you say, they were united in what they were doing. Both of them acknowledged that neither was as good alone as they were together. Mm -hmm. That there was something about collaboration that was just different, that brought out the, 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 a thing in the other, that you, you barely glimpse in what they do on their own. Um, you glimpse it in, in Danny's work. So Amos dies in 1996, and Danny visits Amos on his deathbed. They're reconciled. They'd, been, they'd had a falling out. And Danny says something to the effect of, you know, what am I going to do without you? And Amos says, there's a solution to this. You have a model of me in your head. You have a model of my mind better than anybody. Just imagine me. Call me up kind of thing. Ever since then, Danny's work alone looks in places like stuff they might have done together. And I wonder if to this day, Danny hasn't internalized Amos to some extent. So these two great minds revolutionized the way we think about human cognition. They revealed flaws in the ways we gather information and reach decisions. How do those flaws impact our ability to make good decisions? So the question, the big question is, all right, human beings are moving through the world. And even if they're not thinking about the decisions they make as probabilistic judgments, what their work showed is that when people are making probabilistic judgments, even when the probabilities can be calculated, they misjudge the probabilities in ways that sound quite familiar to anybody who started, who watches human beings. And, and systematically, it's not like they're, they, they misjudge them all over the map. They misjudge them in certain ways. The, the first source of the problem, uh, they call it um, availability. What's available to the mind? I think of it as memory. So if you're driving on the highway uh, in California and it's a sunny day and the, high, and the freeway's kind of open, nobody's going the speed limit. Everybody's going 80 miles an hour, 85 miles an hour. People are racing each other. It's, um, you think that looks like the safe time. And then, and then you come upon an accident where there, you know, there's a body on the road and lights flashing. For the next five miles after that, nobody's driving 85 <laughs> miles an hour. It's in their mind is the risk of being in this car. Mm-hmm. And they adjust their behavior. But probably at the time... When that, when there's, they are actually safest because everybody else is being safer. Um, and so the, the power of what comes to mind. And so what Danny and Amos would say that that's a bucket, like what's available to your mind. The other bucket is similarity judgments. Uh, it's, 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 um, it's this thing is like that thing. I'll, let me give you a sports example. When baseball scouts, are looking at baseball players, young baseball players, decide which one of these people are going to make good professional baseball players. They, the the typical way they do it is like, do that? Does that person remind them of someone who succeeded? A really great example, and in fact, an attempt to disrupt this problem. General manager of the Houston Rockets is, was Daryl Morey some few years ago. And Daryl Morey watched as his scouts would talk about amateur basketball players and they'd say, God, he reminds me of Michael Jordan. He looks like Michael Jordan. Oh, God, he reminds me of Magic or reminds me of Larry Bird. And and it would be a way of selling the player, but it would also be a way of them kind of understanding the player. And whenever these kind of 
similarity judgments, th- those matching things happened. They almost were always wrong because actually they were just seeing physical resemblance, that, you know. And so he, he instituted a rule that was a very Kahneman and Tversky rule. He said, you are allowed to make those comparisons between players. You can say that player reminds me of that player as long as the players are of different race. And he said it was interesting. The comparisons vanished and people make mistakes when they're making those kind of matching judgments. But but they what they did. So that, but when they're doing this work, they don't think they're finished. There are all kinds of little dead ends and kind of partially kind of productive alleys they go down. And the question was, once you know it in a formal way, and once you publish this stuff, how much effect does it have? And like, how did their work change the world? And the simple answer to that, the, the cop out is, well, it had a big effect on academic life. You know, they showed that people were systematically irrational. That it made a mockery of, of neoclassical economics, opened up a, a whole field called behavioral economics, which is their work brought to economics. Even Danny says, even though I know all this stuff, mm-hmm. even though I invented the knowledge, I still am susceptible to all this stuff. That these things, it's like you've got a mag- you've got a magic act going on in your mind, deceiving you. In the same way that you know that this is a trick. That when the magician saws the woman in half, mm-hmm. you still think he sawed her in half. And so it's it's um it's very hard to banish, just banish the problem from your mind. The best you can do is sort of set up systems around you as guardrails, as to kind of jam a wrench in them once the magician starts working, you know, to, to sort of stop the magic act. Tell us about how their research and findings affected hiring practices. Their work certainly leads to this movement of sort of blind auditions that you're going to get that, that people wanting to judge people by something other than sight or in or interviews. And again, sports is the best analogy here. That if you go back 40 years, not even 40 years, 20 years, the idea that anybody would select a professional baseball player for in a draft based on anything but some expert scouts going and staring at him for a few games would have been preposterous. That has been flipped on its head. It's now thought that's insane to let somebody just go look at somebody for a few games and make a judgment about them. What you want is data on that person. Mm-hmm. You want you don't even need to see the person. You need to see the stats. So the idea that you can get around the biases, that the cognitive biases that Kahneman and Tversky present by removing the temptation, mm-hmm. by removing the thing that's causing your mind to be distorted, the sight of the person. I, they're, they're completely responsible for that, I think. I'd like to turn us to a slightly different topic, if we can, because you've written so many books, Michael, and uh, on such fascinating topics. Another topic you've concentrated on is coaching. And what, what I'd like to ask you is, what does it take to be a good coach? And how do you know if you are one? That's a hard question. Um, the uh, I tackle this mostly in a podcast, my Against the Rules podcast, but also in a little book about when I, about a high school baseball coach I had who was a genius. What got me interested in the subject was actually a editor asking me point blank, like, who's the most influential person in your life? 
And I had to go back and think about it. And I was kind of shocked to realize that it was this coach who, who was also a teacher. So what makes a coach really good? So apart from the qualities of the coach, mm-hmm. we must give a nod to the circumstances in which he's coaching or she's coaching. I would say the qualities of a good coach are the absolute first thing is trust, able to earn the trust of the person who's being coached. Because at some point you're asking that person to take some risks, to change something about themselves so they get better. And people don't like to do that. People are rightly kind of wary of that. And, And so that's really important. And you could different kinds of coaches can earn that trust in different kinds of ways. But so that's one. Uh, the belief in the person who's being coached in the coach. I'd say the second thing is it can be achieved. This can be achieved in different ways. You've got to be extremely observant. I will tell you a bad coach. You can tell a bad coach when they walk in and just kind of start shouting stuff <laughs> or they walk or they walk in and they just start giving orders, even if it's calm ones, when they aren't taking stuff in before they're spitting stuff out. The coach paying a lot of attention to the the person who's being coached before they start saying stuff about what you should do. Um, And I'd say the third thing, it sounds silly, but I think really good coaches make it fun that, that in the sense that even if it's hard, people got to want to be coached and if they don't want it, it's kind of pointless. And the way you get them to want it, is in addition to trust, is to make it something they're kind of looking forward to. You kind of want to get. I think of some of the most interesting coaching I've been exposed to. Some of it doesn't call itself coaching. One example, I spent a very odd three days at Second City, the improvisational comedy place, when my now 18-year-old daughter was seven or eight, and I brought her there because she was so negative. Everything was no, no, no. And I thought, ah, I'm going to take her to her improv class and she's going to go into this class for three days and they're going to teach her the value of the, the rules of, of improv are yes and. You've got to take mm. everything. And uh, after the first, I went into the adult, adult class, she went into the kids class. After three hours, we came out and she's jumping up and down saying that was so much fun and so easy. And I was in a cold sweat because <laughs> it was it was so hard for me. <laughs> but but it was it was three really powerful days of coaching. And they didn't call it coaching, but it was showing me the rigidities in my mind. How I just moved through life with those rigidities and how hard it is to break them down and to get to some other place. If I substitute the word leader and talk about trust, observation, and fun, would that apply in your mind? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say leader... If I was going to make a distinction, and a coach is a leader, right? So, but when you say the word leader, the other thing that pops to mind that I find often absent in leadership in our culture right now is leading by example. That there's a lot of do as I say, not as I do going on. And you look at people in positions of power or influence, they are often behaving in self-serving ways that undermine any, any kind of message they're trying to deliver. I would instantly add to the list of those three a very careful examination of one's own behavior and a very close attentiveness to holding yourself to the highest standard so that you can ask people to hold themselves to a high standard. We talk about modeling the way, and I think you're saying 
the same thing there. I want to turn to uh, one final topic because it's a, it relates to another book you've written more recently, and that book is called The Fifth Risk, which has been described by some as a love letter to government employees, which they certainly need. Can you give us an example of an unknown or uncelebrated achievement by a federal agency or public servant that publicly impacted society? Sure, I'll pick one. I'll pick one uh, because I picked one, and I'll tell you how I picked it. So here's what happened. Government shuts down in November of, or January of, what was 2018. All these, like two-thirds of the people get sent home and told they're not, they're not, they don't get paid because they're unessential, telling them they're not important. I called up a friend who runs an organization called the Partnership for Public Service, which mm-hmm. gives awards out to people in public service. And they were just in the process of gathering up all the nominations for these awards. They called the Sandys. And I said, could you just send me the, the raw list? And I, I'm gonna, And he sent me the raw list. And I thought, oh, what am I going to do this? I wanted to write about one of them kind of randomly. I just took the guy's name who was on the top of the list, and the list was alphabetized. His name was Arthur A. Allen. And I, he worked at the Coast Guard, it said. He was an oceanographer who went into the Coast Guard because the work looked kind of interesting, but he didn't know what it was when he was a young postdoc um, in the 70s. He quickly figures out that, to his surprise, actually, Americans have an incredible ability to get lost at sea. We, that, that on, on average, every day, 10 Americans are lost at sea. Today, about seven get rescued. So three Americans a day on average dying because they aren't found at sea. Maybe it's a pleasure craft. It's whatever it is, mm-hmm. fishing boats, whatever it is. Um, he figures out that one of the problems in the middle of the rescue when they're doing these search and rescue operations is that they're getting word that someone is, is lost. They know where they kind of went lost, but it's six hours later. Mm-hmm. Where did the objects drift on the ocean? Where did this where did this human being drift? And it, that depends on what kind of object this person is on. Each object has its own drift characteristics. Arthur Allen basically invents the science of how objects drift to figure out how you find people. It takes him years. He's floating stuff in the Long Island Sound, you know, on his own time, on his own dime, and and, and measuring and making measurements of how objects drift. And building them into in mathematical equations. They can then be put in a computer that a Coast Guard re- search and rescue team can just plug in. Flash forward. I think it's 2001 when his system finally went live and all the Coast Guard had it. Miami Coast Guard Station gets word that a 300-pound man has run out of the window of his Carnival cruise ship cabin and gone into the ocean, but but they only discover his absence some hours after he's done it. Any other time in human history, that person's dead. I mean, no, even if he can last for days, you're not going to find a human being in the in the middle of the ocean. But Arthur Allen has created a a mathematical equation, and they plug it in, and they pluck him out. Hours later, they pluck him out of the sea. All the newspaper stories are incredible find. Amazing miracle, miracle! This guy saved at sea, and then and then everybody moves on the next day. Arthur Allen saved that man's life, and there are hundreds of other people whose lives Arthur Allen saved. And no, not only has no one ever heard of Arthur Allen, we as a society 
sent him home without pay and told him he wasn't essential. It's extraordinary. Yeah, wow. That is so inspirational. And we have people in the judiciary who are Arthur Allens as well. And as you say, unrecognized, but so important. Thank you so very much for, for this interview and for all you've done. And keep up the great work. We're, we're all waiting for your next one. Thanks, Michael. And thanks to our listening audience. A reminder that the books Michael Lewis discussed today are The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds, Coach, Lessons on the Game of Life, and The Fifth Risk. To hear more episodes of In Session, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap Podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to In Session on your mobile device. In Session, Leading the Judiciary is produced by Shelley Easter and directed and edited by Craig Bowden. Our program coordinator is Anna Glashkova. Special thanks to Chris Murray. I'm Lori Murphy. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>